Let's pray, and then uh, we'll dive into our, our, our text this morning. Father, once again, we, as we come to your word and we tackle the subject of generosity in this series, uh, we are reminded that all of this really is a response to your remarkable generosity in our life. As we look around us, we can see how generous you have been. Even in the way that you've constructed this world, that it's not just pragmatic, it's not just utilitarian, but that it's beautiful. And it has delights that just please us and thrill our hearts and our eyes. That you have been supremely generous to us in the giving of your son, Jesus Christ. You did not spare your own son from our need but gave him for us that he might be filled up with our sin and our sin crucified and killed in him. That he would be raised to new life, that his righteousness would be imparted to us and that we would have the hope of eternity with you even though we are rebels and sinners by nature. You've been incredibly generous to us in many, many ways. And so God, I pray that as we continue through this series, a culture of generosity that Lord, we would recognize all of this as a response to your grace and your generosity in our lives that precedes it. So guide us again as we look at this parable this morning. Give us eyes to see what we need to. Give us openness and tenderness of heart to change our lives where we need to. Um, Thank you for your word that instructs us on all these matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would open your Bibles to Luke 16. Again, we're in this series, A Culture of Generosity, and this is uh, the third of what will be four messages on this particular topic. And um, the first week we looked at, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at how Jesus told us in a sense that generosity affects our heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about how he wants, first and foremost, our hearts, not just outward acts of conformity to obedience, But he wants a heart that truly loves him. And one of the ways we can cultivate that kind of heart is through generosity. He tells us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but rather treasures in heaven. And last week we looked at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and identified that not only does generosity affect our heart, but generosity is in fact the command of God. It's not just a suggestion or an idea or something to discuss, but in fact something that God has commanded. And this morning we're in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to learn that generosity is entrepreneurial for the kingdom of God. Now, first service, I messed up that word about a dozen times. I'm going to try to do it less this service. That's my hope. But generosity is entrepreneurial for the kingdom of God. Um, Have you ever seen a, a businessman, an entrepreneur type, who is just very skilled at making money? They're very good at it. They know how to make money. They know how to save money. They know how to multiply profits. Uh, they're very visionary. They can imagine what others cannot see. Uh, and they just have a genuine gift for making, for managing, and for investing in money. Um, I, I remembered a story uh, about a couple years ago when my son, when Aiden was in fourth grade, had a field trip to uh, Usabelli Coal Mine. If any, has anybody ever had a tour of the Usabelli Coal Mine? A few of you? Okay, for those of you parents, when your kid gets to fourth grade and wants to go on that trip, volunteer, okay? I'm telling you, there are worse field trips to go on, believe me. That's a good one. 
and so I got a chance to go on this, on this trip, and I pretended to pay attention to the kids while I, you know, uh, got exposed to this mine and the whole process there, which I thought was fascinating. And uh, one of the things that I remember learning on, on this trip, in fact, I called uh, Bill Groth, the PR guy for the mine this week, just to confirm what I had learned. But uh, one of the things that I had learned there was about the foresight of Joe Usabelli Sr. in sort of the de- early development of that, um, of that mine there. And uh, particularly back in the 80s when they were designing what is now sort of the headquarters building. Uh, it was to be a multi-tiered building with offices and different things on the, on the top couple of, of stories. But the bottom level was particularly, it was to be a shop. It was the garage where they would work on the trucks. And so at the time that they were building this, they were sort of in a transition period between the size of the trucks that they were using presently and the size of the trucks that they anticipated using. So at the time while they were designing this and it was all being engineered and conceived of, they were using a 75-ton truck, these big old Tonka trucks, right? If you've seen these, if you've been on some of these larger mines. And that sounds just huge to me when I think about the fact that I drive a half ton, but uh, 75 tons sounds big. And then they were switching over at that time to a 95-ton truck. And so as they were designing this building, Joe Usabelli Sr. kind of looked at it and said, you know, the doors that we have designed for this lower shop for the maintenance of these vehicles are not large enough. This isn't going to be sufficient. We need to send this back to the engineers and draw something that's a little more robust and can accommodate a bigger truck, particularly the 95-ton truck that we'll be moving to. So that went back to the engineers, and they redrew, and I'm sure they did it with a smile on their face and gladness in their heart, right? Uh, so they redrew everything and, and kind of brought it back. And he looked at it again and, and sent them back to the drawing board one more time and said, no, much bigger. And in fact, in total, I, I think it was three times that he did that. So the end product was a much larger uh, door than was originally uh, designed. And I can imagine that that was very aggravating uh, for some people in the process that it would constantly be redesigned. I'm sure it was expensive uh, to continue to get new drawings and investing more time and money into this, uh, into this thing. But the reality is that, that those actions, in the end, ended up saving the company millions of dollars because he had the foresight to imagine the future and what would be needed in uh, in the future, and today the company is now running 150-ton trucks, more than twice the size of the original. And the way that they saved millions of dollars was, number one, that facility wasn't just wasted investment or wasted cost, and they didn't have to then construct a whole other facility with uh, a, lot more, a lot more money, and they didn't have any downtime, and they didn't lose any capacity as they upgraded the trucks. They weren't restricted by uh, the shop. That's an entrepreneur at work, right? That's somebody who can recognize that if I spend a little extra money now, I'm not only going to save, but have an ability to make more money later. A little bit of cost, a little bit of sacrifice now will pay much greater dividends. It's someone who's willing to take those kinds of short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. And that is exactly the point that Jesus is pressing home in this parable in Luke chapter 16. As we, we look at this manager, this steward, an entrepreneur at, in, in Jesus' time, sort of in this parable, and, and we're going to learn some lessons from this. First of all, we're going to learn the importance of making spiritual investments. And we're going to learn about 
short-term earthly sacrifices for long-term spiritual gains for the kingdom of God. And in the same way that, a, that an earthly entrepreneur or a businessman knows how to make these short-term sacrifices for, long, for long-term gains, Jesus is going to encourage us to invest our earthly resources from this temporary life instead for the enduring kingdom of God. And so that's really what comes out of this, this particular parable. And I would tell you this, uh, this parable, a couple of interesting notes about it, it is easily one of the most debated parables uh, that there are. Uh, in fact, there are over 36 different interpretations of this parable. So just keep that in mind this morning. Because if I land on just the right one, you all should be very pleased and proud of me. Right? Um, also, there are 133 uh, bibliographic references to this parable, which is more than uh, most all of the other parables, with the exception of the prodigal son, which has over 254 um, bibliographic references. The bottom line is there's a lot of discussion about this parable, and it's incredibly provocative. So we're going to dive in and, uh, and see what we learn. So Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. All right, so let's just do some broad strokes here and lay out what we know about the parable. First of all, the manager is questioned. He's brought in and questioned here. And you have to understand, too, the manager is a steward. Okay? This is someone who would handle all the business affairs for the owner. He would deal with the various clients. He would assess bills. He would collect money. And essentially, he would run the business for the owner. Today, this person we might call a controller or a CFO or something uh, like that. And in addition to that, typically these managers were considered you know, not just an employee of a corporation, but rather they were part of the household, uh, You've you got to think a little bit more like a family-owned business. And so this steward or manager, uh, again, it was more than just employment. They were part of the family enterprise. Uh, they were part of the household community. They were integral in sort of the everyday affairs uh, of the household. And so you can imagine, if you're bringing somebody in, not just to manage and to steward all of your money, but to transact business in your name, uh, to handle all of your financial resources and to live as a part of, in a sense, your family, uh, you would want someone who is industrious, someone who is hardworking, but number one, you would want someone who is trustworthy, right? Absolutely trustworthy, because they are acting, in a sense, in your name. And so, in this parable, uh, the manager, of course, here, he is is accused of wasting the master's goods in, first one, uh, in verse 1 and then later on in, in verse 8. But he, the word that's, that's used here, the Greek word is diaskorpizo. That's the word for wasting, diaskorpizo. Uh, and it means scattering. It's actually the same word that is used to describe the prodigal son in that parable in the way that he handled his resources. Remember how he wasted he scattered, he frittered it away, he squandered it. He blew it on insignificant and unimportant things. And that's the same word that is used of the manager here in the way he was handling the master's resources. He wasted them, the squandered, frittered, blew it. 
And so the manager, or the rich man rather, calls in his manager to give an account. In a sense, he does a bit of an audit here, and it results in the fact that they dismiss him. They're going to let him go. Now, I would say that in the parable, uh, the rich man made a crucial error here. Uh, he should have, when he let him go, he should have said, give me your keys, you know, give me your, your passwords to the computer, leave your laptop, you know, whatever else. Uh, we're severing ties right now. But in fact, he doesn't seem to do that. He, it's clear that he gets canned. Uh, but, but then the manager has a few fleeting moments to continue to, to conduct some business, as we'll see. And he takes advantage of those fleeting moments to do something that is uh, kind of shocking or kind of provocative here. Um, so what we find here, the second point is this, that the manager is going to try to secure his future. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. All right, interesting. What's going on here in this, in this passage? Let's identify a couple of things. First of all, the manager has every right to be concerned about his future, right? I, th- I think we could all agree with this. Uh, he's not only about to be dismissed, but he has lost the most important credential that he has, which is not his education, it's not his years of experience, it's not his skill, The most important credential that this man has is his trustworthiness, right? Who cares how much money he can make, how quickly he can make it, how good at investing he is if he won't ultimately bring the profit home to the owner, right? He has lost his most important credential, his trustworthiness. Um, And again, you have to understand too that because his character is called into question, it's not just his career or his livelihood that's called into question, uh, but, but much more than that, he, he can't continue to go on doing this. His reputation is, is shot. Uh, and his thoughts, I think, are right on the money. I've lost this job. I'm not strong enough to, for physical labor to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. More than, more than even losing his job and his career, he's actually lost his place in the household. Uh, I mean, consider that. He's not just unemployed. He's soon to be homeless. He's lost friends. He's lost family. He's lost community. He's lost his place of belonging. His whole world has been turned upside down. And so that brings us kind of to this plan that comes to mind for him in in verse 4 as he's asking this question, how am I going to take care of myself going into the future? In a sense, he says, I'm going to use my position now I'm going to use these fleeting moments that I have while I still have the authority to conduct business with these resources. And I'm going to do that in such a way that I will have a long-term benefit. And so that's kind of what he, he comes up with here. He's, he's lost the loyalty of his employer, and so now he tries to create a new loyalty with some of the current clients that he has. And with his integrity shot, of course, he needs to do something drastic. 
So what the manager does next is very controversial. There's a lot of discussion about that. And to be honest with you, it's hard to be certain about the details as, as to uh, what he does. And, and, and sort of an interpretive thing I want to bring to your attention is this is a parable. And so let me remind you about sort of the genre of parables and how we read and interpret them. When we read a parable, when we're interpreting a parable, not every single little element of the parable is significant. In the genre of a parable, as Jesus uses them, he uses them to make a point, one big punch, one big idea. And so a lot of times the way we, we misinterpret and misunderstand parables is when we try to find a little piece of application for every single element of it. That's not the point. That's not the intent. The intent is to make one big point with it. And that is, in a sense, what, that's what Jesus is, is doing here. So we've got to keep, keep that in mind here. So the manager calls in uh, the master's debtors, and he basically, well, he adjusts their bills, right? How much do you owe my master? Now, understand, too, the debtors, uh, they're more than likely farming on the rich man's land, okay? And, and that's, that's why we see, and they're probably doing that for a fixed amount of percentage of their produce. That's why the debts are written as produce and not as cash, Okay? So it's not like they've borrowed something from him. They're using his land for produce and then paying him on the dividends of what they, of what they get. And so he comes in, you know, 800 gallons of olive oil. That's, that's how much I owe. And he says, take it quickly, make, your, make it 400. And then to the next, 1,000 bushels of wheat. Take your bill and make it 800. Now what has just happened here is both simple and complex, I mean, it's simple in that we look at it and we go, well, it's easy here. He'd simply reduce the amount of debt, right? That's easy. The first debt's reduced by 50%, the second debt by 20%. And the motive is already given to us. The manager's trying to secure his future with another master by helping them out right now. The, the big question is, on what basis does he do this? And that's where all of the debate kind of surrounds this particular uh, parable, and I want to work through three possible interpretations. Uh, again, there there are, uh, I think, what is it, thirty-three different interpretations of this passage. Uh, but I think there's three that are kind of rise above all of the rest, and I'll tell you which one I favor uh, in just a second here. But the first possibility is this: the first possibility, option one, is that he simply reduced the debt. They really owed that amount. And he just basically said, cut it in half, essentially, or you know, cut it down, essentially ripping off his, his master. The weakness of this interpretation is that it seems really, really unlikely that the master's going to come back in and commend him for this, right? Hey, well done. You ripped me right off by like, like quite a lot, but good job. Yeah, we'll see you. You know, I, I, don't, I don't see that conversation happening. That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And, and more than that, we can hardly expect Jesus to commend him as well, right? Hey, good job. You ripped off your master. Well done. I mean, you know, you disregarded the law and all of that, but good job. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, the second possibility is that uh, maybe he removes an interest charge, um, you know, sort of from, from the debt. Now, there's a weakness to this that Interest isn't mentioned here at all, right? We're not told that that was a part of this. It could have been sort of a cultural thing that would have been 
uh, expected and known and assumed by the original hearers, but it's at least not mentioned here. There are problems with this as well, because uh, in the Mosaic law, to charge exorbitant interest was forbidden. And I would call 20% and 50%, uh, you know, pretty heavy interest. In other words, if he was removing this interest charge and it was at that amount, he essentially would have been exposing his master to having broken the Mosaic law. Once again, I think it's unlikely that the master would have come in and said, hey, good job. I mean, you just dimed me out to everybody and they know how much I've been ripping them out. Thanks, you know, ripping them off. Thanks for that. Um, Unless he's saying something like, you know, hey, well played. That was shrewd. You got me. We'll see you later. But I, again, I don't think that that's what he's doing. And again, I don't think Jesus would have commended that kind of an act of revenge. Uh, so I don't think that's the case. The third option is the one that I prefer. And I think probably what's happening here is that he's removing his own commission. Um, I think probably this was how he made his living, sort of a commission. And uh, again, the weakness of this is that the commission is nowhere mentioned. But once again, that could have just been a cultural assumption. Um, but this seems to really fit uh, the context here and what Jesus is, is, is getting at especially. Um, uh, the strength of this interpretation, I think, makes it favorable for the following reasons. Number one, it fits the context. It supports exactly what Jesus sort of gets to and teaches in the end, which is that you need to be willing to make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. And if that's what he does here and says, hey, I'm willing to give up and to yield my own commission here, even though that's, that's harmful to me, my master doesn't lose anything, and these other folks that I hope to gain employment with don't lose anything, then I think it's very believable that the master would come back to him and say, now that was well done. That was shrewd. That was in a way that made me whole, made them whole, and you, you made a good future planning for yourself, well done. And I think it's something Jesus would have uh, commended as well. Uh, so I think it's, that's very likely. It's also, it is a shrewd act. It is cunning. It's crafty. It's a, it's, a, it's a good solution to the problem that he has here. And Jesus certainly has uh, commanded us in the scriptures to be shrewd as vipers and innocent as doves, right? And it's that kind of a thing. And so I think the manager shrewdly sacrifices this short-term profit for, uh, in a sense, long-term security here. Um, and I think that's, that's the point. Now, here's the thing. I'm not 100% sure about that. And it's possible that the first one is the thing. I mean, it's possible that he, in a sense, just rips off his master. I have a hard time swallowing that, but I, I guess that's possible. But it is an incredibly provocative parable that Jesus tells here. Um, But all in all, the manager's shrewdness is commended. It's commended both by the master and it's commended by Jesus. And even though we're not sure as to the basis of how this discounting was done, Jesus gives us the straight interpretation of this passage. He tells us directly how it applies to us and what we are to do with it. The spiritual principle that Jesus teaches and teaches about from verses 8 through 15 is, is this. This parable is about a perspective and how we handle the resources that have been entrusted to us on this earth. How we use these fleeting moments of our lives to direct resources that have been entrusted to us has a lot to do with sort of long-term perspective. 
In other words, we ought to be cunning and creative and shrewd and forward-thinking and entrepreneurial and how we use the resources that God has entrusted to us for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I think maybe the most provocative thing in this whole parable is assumed at the very beginning, and that is this. We are addressed here not as the owners, but as what? The managers. In other words, Jesus starts right off saying, this isn't yours. None of it's yours. You're stewards of what's mine. You're just the manager. And you have an important role as a manager. But it's not yours. And that's the posture. That's the position that he puts us in as he teaches through this. We're the CFOs. We're the stewards. We're the managers. We are the ones entrusted to make a spiritual profit for our master, for the kingdom of God. And so as complicated as all the nuances of this parable are, the application is very easy and very simple. Jesus gives it to us plainly. And it's this, use earthly resources to make a spiritual profit. In fact, we could probably adjust that to say, use the earthly resources God has given to you to make a profit for him, which is why he gave them to you in the first place. Look at Luke 16.9 here. Just a very, very provocative um, verse. This one, verse 9 especially. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Boy, is that challenging or what? There's something to discuss over lunch today right there. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And so again, the nuances of this parable are difficult, but Jesus makes the point very clear. The people of this world, people all around us, businesses all around us, corporations all around us are all about making a profit, right? And they're shrewd. They're driven by it. This world is driven by profit. And Jesus is in a sense saying, you Christians, you followers of mine should be as shrewd as the world is in making a financial profit. You should be as shrewd in making a spiritual profit for the kingdom of God with what I have entrusted to you. As shrewd as the world is, you are to be shrewd for the kingdom of God. And that is the challenging thing that Jesus is telling us. We should be vigilant in seeking a kingdom return on investment. And he gives us some great advice here. The first is this, faithful and little, faithful and little, faithful and much. I think a lot of people 
here talks about stewardship and finances and giving from the church especially, and they kind of throw up their hands and shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, clearly this isn't meant for me because I don't have much. I can't make big scores for the kingdom of God, so clearly this is not for me. And I think that's absolutely wrong thinking. What Jesus says is be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. And I believe, I said this, I've said this before, I believe, I believe God is, you know, he's the shrewdest investor there is. And when he looks at his people and says, these folks are, are making good investments for the kingdom of God with the little they have, well, based on what this passage tells us, I believe that he will give more, not so they can have more, so that they continue to make investments for the kingdom of God. God is no fool where he invests his money. He invests in those who invest in the kingdom of God. Faithful and little, faithful and much. Small things are big things. I think we have a couple of just practical things here. You need to be careful where you spend your money. We all need to be. Our money is power. What we give away, we don't just get an equal return on, but we actually give resources to someone else and empower whatever they are driven by. And so money is, in a sense, power. It empowers. We need to be faithful in our giving. We need to make sure that we are regularly letting go of what we have in our hearts determined to let go of, to make sure that we are continuing to cultivate a heart for the Lord, as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. With our possessions, we need to make sure that we are not owned by our possessions, but continually relinquishing what God has entrusted to us and doing it with an eye for the kingdom of God. How can we benefit the kingdom of God? Small things are big things. And so whether you have much or whether you have little, you're called to be faithful. And finally, another thing we learn here is that money is either a tool or a trap. I think one of the most common responses to this kind of a teaching really is an attitude of pride and a sense of personal responsibility and entitlement. In other words, I made this money. I worked hard for this money. I was thoughtful enough and forward-thinking enough to make this money. I grew this money. I created a margin, and I multiplied it time and time again. And the money I have, I have because I worked hard. I have because I was disciplined. I have because I was shrewd. I have this money because I, right? Deuteronomy 8.17 says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. In other words, the ability to earn, the ability to make wealth, to create wealth, is itself a gift from God. And the wealth that is produced equally belongs to him. In this parable, we are confronted not as owners. We're confronted as managers and stewards, those entrusted with his resources. And so in this parable, we're basically given a theoretical audit, right? We're kind of given this picture of how this, this steward is set down with the master and had to give an account of how he had handled things and it didn't come up very well. And so he was basically fired from his position for that. And I kind of want to do the same thing for you this morning. I want to present to you a situation where you are to be audited. Self-audit. If you were to sit down 
before Jesus who has entrusted you with all that you have and the ability to earn and all of the rest, and he were to conduct an audit of how you have handled those resources entrusted to you, how would you come out? If your life were the parable, would you have been fired? Would you have been canned? How, how would it have affected you? And so I want to challenge you to do that. We, I've been giving you three generosity challenges, or two already. This is the third. The first generosity challenge I gave you was uh, to give something away. As we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed the, attach, or the, the connection between um, our earthly possessions and our heart towards the Lord, our riches and our heart towards the Lord, that I challenge you to give something away to continue to cultivate a heart for the Lord and not the things that we think we hold. And then in the second week, as we talked about the idea that generosity is a command, I challenge you with a different aspect of giving. I, I, I challenge you to give yourself away in service to another person, some way that you might come alongside and aid and support somebody. How are you doing in your homework assignments? You guys keeping up? I've heard a couple of reports of different things. It's been really fun to hear some of these different things where somebody will say, I, I just got blown away. Somebody did X, Y, Z. It was so cool. And so it's been fun to start to hear some of that back. Um, so this is your third generosity challenge. I don't want you to get behind on your homework here. It's tough to make it up. Um, and there's one more coming, by the way, uh, in two weeks. But uh, the challenge today, based on this, pro- or this uh, parable, is this. To evaluate your giving. In other words, how are you investing in the kingdom of God? Are you an entrepreneur for the kingdom of God or are you simply a manager for your own earthly kingdom? And so I have a series of questions and I I think they're all kind of painful to be honest with you. And uh, I want to challenge you to go. There's six of them here and I'm sorry to say that they didn't make it into your notes which was my error. But if you go online this week and by the way, not only the sermon but the notes are online every week, uh, those questions will be there. And I would encourage you to sit down with your spouse And to look over uh, your finances and ask yourself, what is our spiritual investment portfolio? What does it look like? What are we doing for the kingdom of God? And is it what we should be doing? So here's the questions I would challenge you to consider. Uh, First of all, do I recognize that I am a steward and not an owner? Or is that a mentality that needs to shift in you? Would Jesus consider me a shrewd manager? In other words, as much as the world looks to make an earthly profit, am I that intent on making a profit for the kingdom of God? Not a financial profit, but a spiritual profit. Am I investing in people's lives? Am I giving of my resources in such a way that the gospel will go forward, that people will come to know Christ, that missionaries will be sent, that churches can continue to do the ministry that they're called to do? Am I generous in such a way that the kingdom of God would expand because I'm shrewd, continually looking for a spiritual profit as much as the world is looking for a financial profit? Am I making short-term sacrifices for long-term Spiritual gains. Am I making a spiritual profit for my master? Fifth, am I faithful with little? Again, I know some of you are sit back and go, well, I don't have much to offer. Uh, 
Faithful with little, faithful with much. And then finally, I think this may be the hardest one. Um, If I were the owner, would I entrust me with more? Or would I have to fire myself? If I were the owner, would I entrust me with more? I know this is a challenging series, um, this culture of generosity. And I want to remind you that I, I, I don't want this series to be a burden. I don't want it to be driven by guilt. I want it to be driven by grace. Just as we reflected at the beginning and the opening, that this world that we have around us and all that we have in our lives and what God has done for us supremely in his son Jesus Christ is an act of generosity and an act of grace. And we have a chance to respond to what God has done for us with remarkable generosity. And I think if the church today were absolutely generous to one another, to the kingdom of God, and being shrewd and making spiritual spiritual progress, spiritual investments, I think the world would stand and go, how is it that your hearts are so different with regard to money and resources? And we would have an opportunity to say, because of the grace of God in my life. And the world needs to hear that. So I challenge you with this third generosity challenge. You've got a couple weeks to work this one out, and then we'll come back with one more. So let me pray for you as you guys consider these things. Father, I'm so grateful for um, the teaching of Jesus, which wasn't just mediocre or okay, but it was phenomenal, it was excellent, it was provocative, it challenges us. 2,000 years old, and it still pricks right at our heart today. It gets right at, right at the core of us. Father, we know that this world, money and possessions, pull at our heart. And we don't want to be entrapped or entangled by anything. We want our hearts to be supremely for you. God, I pray that you would help each one here to have the courage to sit down and to take a look at their kingdom portfolio. What are they doing for you? God, if we're doing less, if our our resources and our finances are primarily wrapped around ourselves, then by your spirit, I pray that you would direct us to change as we need to change. Give us eyes to see opportunities. Help us to imagine what others can't imagine. Help us to be entrepreneurial for the kingdom of God. We don't want to leave this earth having left resources behind that are just going to be frittered away. God, we want everything that we have in this world, we want to understand it as a trust by you to make a profit for the kingdom of God to make an impact in the lives of other people, to have a spiritual impact. Lord, may we not be stingy, may we be generous for the sake of the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.